0: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We are so glad that you are here. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church and today's message is from our new series in Acts titled Continuation. Today, Kurt Katsorki will be teaching from Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. So make sure to read along with us in your Bible as we get started. Good morning. I don't know who just let out that laugh over there, but whatever the joke was, I kinda wanna know it now. Um, But uh, hey, it's good to be with you. Happy New Year 2022, believe that or not. Um, as we get into this year, I just want to share a few things with you. Uh, the first one is, if you didn't see it when you came in, Tony announced uh, Don's retirement party is coming up. There's a there's a invitation in your bulletin for that. If you're planning on coming, please fill it out and drop it in one of the offering boxes so we know how many people to prepare food for. Should be a really fun time of uh, celebrating Don, maybe making some short, short jokes um, and uh, a few other things. But. Uh, as as dawn steps away, yeah, it's not like I'm that tall. Good point. Jeez. Um, um, as we, uh, I'm average height and overweight, so just whatever. <laughs> Uh, too many jokes, okay. Um, the other thing to share is as Don steps away, we, we need someone to join the elder board, and so the uh, Sean and I, Sean Sever and I, uh, sat down with Sean Palomar this last week and invited him to be a member of the elder board, and Sean said yes. Um, so Sean is, you'll, yeah, yeah, you'll see Sean on stage. Uh, he plays drums and guitar, and uh, he's really involved with the worship ministry. And uh, so if you're, the thing we do on this, if you're aware of any biblical reason that Sean shouldn't be on the elder board, we that you submit that in writing with your name this week and then uh, we would address that. Um, So that's what's going on there. And then uh, the other question that's come up is what's going on in 2022? And so the vision of the church is not changing. Our our goal is to be a home for the growing family of God and that means that we want to be a place where Christians are growing in their relationship with Jesus but there's also new people coming into relationship with Jesus through through his gospel, his death, burial and resurrection and we want to be a place where both non-believer and believer have the opportunity to meet and grow closer to Jesus um, and and deepen faith there. Uh, The other thing to share with you is there's the financial stability of the church is very good right now through uh, the generous giving of of you. Uh, The church is well ahead of the, the, the annual need towards giving and so we're, we're doing really well there uh, and then the, the building program is going on as well and there's enough money there to do the next stage hopefully in the spring and summer so you should start seeing those spark the parking lot changes happen um, in the spring and summer of 2022 so those, that's all very good stuff. Now obviously there's some staffing changes. Dawn is is retiring and uh, we've hired Brendan Harden as the new next generation pastor he's working with middle school students over there right now uh, Tony is moving out of next gen and into uh, counseling care and discipleship, and so Tony will handle the majority of the the counseling load, particularly with men, and premarital counseling and things like that. Um, and then he's also going to be heavily involved with teaching at the unite service and at the men's group on Monday night. So Tony will spend most of his time. Um, with people in a care, counseling, and discipleship manner, okay? So that's what you can count on Tony to do. Uh, another staffing change is Lisa Potts has been the financial secretary, or not financial, but the office secretary for uh, the last five years, and Lisa just accepted a job at a local uh, quilt store, and so she's going to uh, move away from working for the church and, and to a local business there. Um, she uh, she she did an excellent job in her five years with the church uh, in that area, and, and I believe very strongly that she left the office better than she she found it. It's a very well-organized, well-oiled machine, and uh, Karen Beatty is going to step into that role. Um, many of you know Karen, redhead and glasses that uh, greets at the front door very often, and so Karen's going to step into that role, and she has all the administrative skills to do that. Uh, we feel very blessed that Lisa was here, and she did what she did, same with Dawn, um, and we feel very confident that both Brendan and Tony and Karen will do well in their in their new roles, and so that's something that we're looking forward to this year. Uh, as far as the teaching schedule is concerned we're going to be in the book of Acts we'll finish the book of Acts just before Easter and then we'll have about a four week period where we'll have a couple of guest speakers a man named Ken Hartley I met him at a conference he uh, is an expert in uh, communication and so he's going to do some stuff with staff helping us understand each other and communicate well with each other and then he's going to speak on the weekend um, services and then Kevin Dixon is coming over from the Czech Republic Kevin and his wife Daniela and their kids will be here and Kevin will speak at one of the weekend services as well uh, Don will be here twice in February and twice in July, assuming he doesn't change his plans, um, which is an assumption. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, so we'll, we'll be in Acts, and then we'll have those guest speakers, and then we'll have some, uh, some uh – teaching around Easter that matches the season obviously and we'll do the same thing at Christmas but Acts Revelation will be where we'll go uh, once we're done with the book of Acts we'll look at the book of Revelation and then during the summer we'll go through some psalms uh, some selected psalms we'll go through those and so you can kind of count on Acts Revelation Psalms um, holiday messages that match the season some guest speakers some missionaries and dawn coming in um, as well as me teaching roughly 40 of the 52 weekends this year so that's kind of what's going on in 2022 Uh, and so I think there's. a lot to be thankful for, a lot to look forward to, and a lot to pray about as we approach this season. If you have any questions about any of that, you're certainly welcome to ask me or one of the other elders kind of what's going on there. If you want more details, obviously that's just the cliff notes. If you want more, you're welcome to ask. Okay. So that's that, looking at Acts chapter 21 this morning, we're going to go through verses 15 through 25, and I've titled this message, The Old Guard of the Wrong Things. Um, and as we approach this, what we kind of want to ask is what defines biblical worship of God? So if you want to understand from a, from the Bible, what does worshiping God really entail, uh, that, that's what we want to look at this morning. And uh, kind of a reminder of the book of Acts, kind of what's going on here. In Acts 1-8, Jesus is resurrected, he appears to his disciples, he's getting ready to Sent to heaven, and he tells them that they are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then you have Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit, and then in chapters two through eight, you have ministry in Jerusalem, and so there's there's it focuses on uh, ministry primarily to Jewish people in Jerusalem, and then in chapters eight through twelve, you have ministry in Judea and Samaria. This in Paul, includes Paul's conversion, and then the rest of the book is Paul's missionary journeys and things that come from those. And so in chapters. 13 and 14, you have Paul's first missionary journey, his return from that missionary journey, sharing what's gone on with sharing the gospel with the uh, non Jewish people, the Gentiles, and there's the Jerusalem Council where they make an important decision that we'll talk about in this message today. And then in Acts 16 through 18, you have Paul's second missionary journey, in Acts 18 through 21, his third missionary journey. So we've finished the missionary journeys, and where we pick up today in chapter 21 is the return to Jerusalem, and then we're going to see Paul's arrest, his trials, his transfer to Rome and then the book of Acts ends if it were a movie at the end of the bo- at the end of it there would just be a screen that says to be continued dot 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 um, and the sequel is actually the lives of Christians uh, so the lives of the early church fathers is the sequel, and then the lives of the Christians from there and, and so we 're probably in uh, oh i don 't know the 30 or 40th generation of sequels. And we are the sequel. You and I, Christians, are the sequel to the book of Acts. And God has called us to carry this message of being God's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. That's what we're here to do. That's what God has us here to do. And so, as a, as we look at this, a contextual reminder of the verses we're going to look at. Paul he is determined to go to Jerusalem at this point to share a financial gift with the church there. He's been collecting a financial gift as he's gone around to the different places, and he really wants to give that gift to the church in Jerusalem. Um, he has uh, sort of set his face towards Jerusalem, despite clear warnings from the Spirit and fellow Christians that what's ahead of him is going to be very difficult. Uh, the passage just before this, a guy named Agabus uh, takes Paul's belt off and he binds himself, and he tells him that the man who who owns this belt when he goes to Jerusalem will be bound and chained and so Paul understands the difficulty that's ahead of him um, in his ministry leading to this point, Paul has been the chief evangelist of non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, and this has caused dispute with traditional Jews and Jewish Christians. Uh, so as we go into this, what you're going to see is that there's a group of people who who they believe that the only way to worship God is the Jewish way. Um, and even if you're a follower of Jesus, the only way to worship, God, worship Jesus is the Jewish way. Um, and if that were true, we'd have to do things very different this morning. Um, but this clash, it's not going to go unresolved and Paul returns to Jerusalem as as he returns to Jerusalem this comes to a head. The other thing that's important is the author's intent. So Luke, uh, the physician, wrote this, and he wrote this, um, and he recorded eyewitness accounts. Most of the biblical scholars believe that uh, Luke was hired by a wealthy Christian to write both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and he was hired to do that to assist Paul in his trial before Caesar. So most people believe that there was someone or a group of wealthy Christians that saw what was ahead of Paul, and they said, hey, Luke, you're good at this history stuff. Will you collect the eyewitness accounts both of... Jesus' life and of the early church because we want these documents to be able to go to Rome when Paul's on trial before Caesar. And so Luke is commissioned to do that. Uh, Both letters are addressed to someone named Theophilus. It's probably a pseudonym for the financial backer of Luke's writing. Theophilus means lover of God. Um, And so these historical accounts of eyewitness testimony were then presented during Paul's trial in Rome. Uh, Luke demonstrates that Paul, and this is his goal, is to demonstrate that Paul is not the antagonist in these altercations but the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem or the guilty party. And so these documents would have been given to give background and then uh, uh, the actual events that took place around Paul's trial. And the point behind it for Luke is to show, look, Paul wasn't the antagonist here. It's actually the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem that are the antagonists. And we see that time and again. History indicates that these letters were helpful in Paul's trials, but, but ultimately the justice of Rome proved faulty, and Paul was executed in 67 AD. Um, but so that's kind of what's going on as we go through this, and you have Luke's intent, you have where Paul is at in his ministry. Um, and so let me pray, and then we'll, we'll pick up in verse 15 of chapter 21. So Father, as we come to your word, uh, we are thankful, first of all, that we can, that you did commission. You had someone commission Luke to write this down so that we can understand the... The history of the early church and the conflicts that were going on there and then the resolution of those conflicts. Um, It's interesting that the resolution of those conflicts still provide us with the wisdom that we need today. Um, And so I I pray that your wisdom that is within these passages would would challenge us. Uh, I do think there's something in this passage that will challenge each and every person here today, whether or not they want to come in line with you or live their own way. Um, And uh, I pray that that challenge would be received with an eager heart of obedience to follow you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it picks up there in verse 15. It says, After this, and after this is after they're leaving a place called Caesarea. After this we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went along with us and brought us to Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. And so they they leave Caesarea, which is just northwest of Jerusalem on the coast, and they're headed into Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, or in Jerusalem, they stop at uh, Nason of Cyprus's house. Uh, in the first missionary journey, it says that he's an early disciple. The first mission, missionary journey, one of the first places they stopped was Cyprus. Barnabas, who accompanied Paul, was from Cyprus, and so he knew people there. Um, and uh, m- many of the early converts outside of Jerusalem were from Cyprus, and so this is one of those people people and then it says when they reached Jerusalem the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly the following day Paul went with us to James and the elders and excuse me and all the elders were present so you have James who is viewed as the leader of the Jerusalem church uh, and the elders who are gathered with him so uh, the leadership of the church there comes together and they they meet with Paul. After greeting them, and at that point of greeting them, he probably gave them the gift, the financial gift as well, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so in 57 AD, that's when this is going on, Paul leaves Caesarea, travels to Jerusalem, shares his missionary journeys with the church leadership, and gives the large offering that he collected. So he meets with them and he says, hey, uh, when we were in Athens, uh, there were a group of people, and this is how we interacted with the the non-Jewish people there. And they had this God who was the unnamed God, and I actually used that to show them that they, were, they, they had knowledge of, of Jesus, and so on and so forth. He would have just shared the different ministries that, uh, that went on in the different cities that he went to. And he gives them the financial gifts. And then in verse 20 it says, When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses." telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to the customs. So he tells them the stories, and they say, hey, that's wonderful, and they rejoice. But then there's this apprehension about Paul's reputation among believing Jews who were zealous for the Jewish law. They say, hey, that's great that Jesus is being shared with the Gentiles, but here's the rumor that's being spread about you. The rumor that's being spread is you're not only telling Gentiles that they don't need to follow the Mosaic law, but you're telling Jews to abandon it as well. And this is not true of Paul. In fact, uh, Paul had uh, had a very Jewish manner of Uh, worshiping God himself Uh, both in this passage and in Acts chapter 18 he goes through something called a Nazarite vow which is in Numbers chapter 6 and if you want more detail on it but they shave their head, they abstain from alcohol they do some different things and at the end of that they purchase animals and they go in and they sacrifice the animals in the temple and so Paul had a very Jewish understanding of dedicating himself and worshiping God. We'll get into more about those sacrifices in just a second but what's going on is uh, he had no problem Being both a Jewish follower of Jesus and doing Old Testament customs, but also saying, if you don't want to follow those Old Testament customs, that's not the only way to worship Jesus. And so, but this, but this understanding of who Paul is uh, and this lie that's being spread that he's telling the Jewish people not to follow the customs of the Jewish people is something that they have to deal with. And so they're wondering, what do we do? And that's where James comes in in verse 22. It says, so what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they are, t- that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are careful about observing the law. And so James has an interesting suggestion. He suggests placating the Jewish believers in Jerusalem by taking a Nazarite vow. And what's interesting, Paul agrees to do so. He also agrees to pay for the expense of four other men to do the same who evidently could not afford the cost of the sacrifices that were involved with this. And so, early Jewish Christians had no issue balancing the finality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection with their ceremonial Jewish laws and customs. So, he had no problem saying, Jesus' sacrifice, he died once for all for the cost of sin, it is paid in full, it's done for, but I'm also headed down to the temple to sacrifice some animals, in dedicating myself to God. And so, we hear that and we go, boy, that sounds weird. Why is the sacrificial system being honored by Paul? And the answer to that is the sacrificial system never truly dealt with sin. In the Old Testament, it was a shadow of Jesus' sacrifice that was to come once and for all. And we see here in the New Testament by an observing Jew and as we went through the book of Ezekiel that during the Millennial Temple, the sacrifices will be reinstituted. And so they will actually be memorials of what Jesus had done. In the Old Testament, you have something foreshadowing what Jesus has done. The New Testament and in the Millennial time, you have something that is a memorial of what Jesus did. And so for him, he had no problem doing this. The problem that arose was when there was a group of people who said, but in order for you to worship Jesus, you have to become Jewish as well. You have to follow the Jewish customs in order to worship Jesus. And that's the only way. The only way to worship God is the Jewish way. And Paul, again and again, and the council in Jerusalem, which we're going to get to in a second, they draw out that that is not the only way. There are certain things that we have to be resolute about. There are certain things that if you're going to follow Jesus, these things are absolute and they must be done. But preferential stuff about worship is not the point. Okay, And that's what this is drawing out here, is that there, there's not just one way to worship God. So if you, were to, if you were to head to a different church this morning, you would find that there are different manners in which people do this. Uh, if you were to go to a Lutheran church, the Lutherans have been following the same calendar since Martin Luther, right? Uh, they have been doing the same structure for their worship for hundreds of years. They wear the traditional robes, they have different, you know, they have an altar, they have candles. Is it wrong? No, but it is the manner in which they do worship. Does it miss out on who God is? No. If you could go to a Catholic church and find things that are very true and very right about worship to God. You could head down the street to a number of different churches, and things are done a little bit differently, right? They don't have drums on stage. There was nobody. There was no guitar solo. Um, you know, there are things that are different. These are preferential things. They do not determine what's right or what's wrong. Their pastor might be wearing different clothes. Their, their people might be more relaxed in their clothing. Their people might be more uh, more traditional in their clothing Uh, there's all sorts of things that customs and and traditions do but they don't determine the truth about the gospel they're just preferential things and that's what is being drawn out here so Paul, he, he goes and he does this. He, he doesn't have a problem doing that. This Nazarite vow, he, he's, not, he's okay with being both Jewish and worshiping Jesus, but he's also okay in saying, I become all things to all people. When I'm with the Gentiles, I worship like a Gentile. When I'm with the Jews, I worship like a Jew. I, I don't really care about the style of worship. I just care that Jesus is worshiped. what had happened with these other group of people is they had become old guards of the wrong thing and I think that that's something that we as individual believers and as a church have to watch out for are we old guards of the wrong thing Are we more worried about our worship preferences being met in the style of music or the type of clothing or the the way that the sanctuary looks or any number of things that are just superficial? Are we more concerned about that or is our focus on Jesus? And the other thing that happens is in their incorrect mindset, what they missed out on, they missed out on the gospel moving to the next culture and the next generation. That's what they missed out on. They didn't get to be a part of the gospel going to the next culture and the next generation. And so when you become an old guard of the wrong thing, that's what you miss. You miss the gospel getting to go to the next culture and the next generation. And that's the question that serious Christians ask. Not, will my preferences be met, but am I a part of the gospel going to the next culture and the next generation? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what's important to me. You'll you'll, you'll be it from this generation to the next generation and you're going to make sure that biblical faith gets passed to the next generation. And does the next generation think differently? Totally. We've seen that very strongly in the United States, say in the last three or four generations. Those that are being raised now think very differently than my grandparents. It is what it is. The question is, is the gospel still true? You bet it is. Does it still have the ability to reach into that generation and save people from it so that they can then pass the gospel to the next generation? You betcha. Does the style of music matter? No. No. And so he goes on here in verse 25, with regard to the Gentiles who have believed, he's going to tell them now, here's the things that must you must be resolute about. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So here are the three things that have to be resolute about. The decision of the Jerusalem Council, which was in 49 AD in Acts chapter 15, is reiterated. This verse focuses on mortality, idolatry, and morality. If you like M&Ms, these are the MIMs, okay? Mortality, idolatry, and morality. The well-defined reality of Scripture is that when people worship anything other than God and the person of Jesus, they devalue the lives of others, and their sexual ethic goes out the window. So this is what we have to guard against in the church and never give in to. And, and this, is, this is clear as we went through the book of Ezekiel. What they do is they, they worship idols. They start devaluing other people. They don't care for the poor. They don't care for widows. They don't care for certain people groups. Certain people are not worthy of being cared for. And so they devalue the lives of other people and then their sexual ethic goes out the window. And this is very clear that when you worship something other than God, you devalue the lives of certain groups of people and your sexual ethic goes out the window. It happens every single time. And so these are like markers on the, their, 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 the check engine light on your dashboard. When you see, I don't care about this group of people because their political views are different than mine. Or I don't care about this group of people because of the color of their skin. Or I'm willing to degrade this group of people because of the way that they view morality. Or I'm willing to degrade this group of people because of fill in the blank. Your, the center of your worship is not Jesus. If you're willing to say that this group of people is not worthy of grace and kindness and love because of something that they do or the color of their skin or their nationality or whatever the case may be, Jesus is no longer the center of your worship. So racism, nationalism, sexism, uh, abortion, all of these things, they demonstrate that, they, that at the center of your worship is something other than Jesus. And in the same is true of sexual ethics. When you say, I'm willing to redefine biblical sexual ethics, and the Bible's very clear on this. One man, one woman, inside the confines of covenant marriage till death do them part. It's very clear. And what our culture says is, no, it could be any number of other things. It's really interesting. I've been watching these videos uh, that are on Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and he has the same problem in 1942. Guess what? They had the same problem in... In 67 AD. It's been the same problem all along. People say Jesus is no longer the center of my worship. This group of people isn't worth being valued. And I'm going to do whatever I want sexually. It happens throughout human history. And what they are is they're indicators on the dashboard. Jesus is not the center of my worship and so if you see these things in your own life well I hate this group of people well I'm going to do pornography and it's, not, and it's no big deal Jesus is not the center of your worship I hate this group of people or I'm not willing to love this group of people and I'm going to redefine sexuality to be homosexuality is fine uh, 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 sex outside of marriage is fine so on and so forth those are lights on the dashboard Jesus is not the center of your worship and so these are the things that we must be resolute about But worship preferences, styles, cultures, and language and heritage, they've changed in the church for 2,000 years. And they'll change again. Those things will change again. These things are secondary and irrelevant to the God of the Bible being the center of worship, life being valued, and sexual morality. And so what we see from this is followers of Jesus have liberty to express their love of and devotion to God in a nearly endless variety of ways so long as they adhere in these three areas. Forcing one's flavor of Christianity on others is not the goal. Rather, it is to maintain and pass biblical faith and morality to the next generation and culture. That is the aim. And so I want to dig into each of these three things a little bit more. The first one being the nature of the biblical triune God. If you're not familiar with the Nicene Creed, I'd encourage you to be so. Uh, I'm going to read it to you right now. This was something that early Christians came together and they said, what do we really believe about God? There's there's different views where uh, there's a group of people that are saying Jesus actually wasn't God. There's a group of people that are saying Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. There's a group of people saying uh, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. There were all these heresies, wrong beliefs about God springing up. And so they came together, the church leadership came together and they said, this is our belief about God. This is orthodoxy. Okay, And so it says this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. And that was central to what was going on at the time, because there were a group of people that were saying that Jesus was not divine. There were a group of people that were saying he was a created being. And so what they said is he is begotten, not made, the same essence, and that word essence has the idea of the same substance, Right. And so uh, the early church in England, they would say, well, you've seen a, a clover, right? A clover has three leaves, but it's obviously just the clover. And so they're of the same substance, but you can see three separate entities in them. And they're saying, this is the same thing of God. Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit. And the Virgin Mary and was made a human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if I could add one line to the Nicene Creed, I know, who am I? Um, But I would add after he rose from the dead according to the scriptures, he appeared to many eyewitnesses. Then he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. Though he, excuse me, he spoke through prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, and that word means universal. We believe in one holy universal and apostolic church. We believe that there is a singular church that should cover the earth and that that singular church is apostolic in nature. It teaches the teaching of the apostles. Not somebody who's not an eyewitness, which is what they were dealing with at the time. Here comes these Gnostics. They're not eyewitnesses of Jesus, and they write the Gospel of Philip. Well, it's all nonsense. They weren't there. They didn't actually see Jesus. They didn't walk with Jesus. They didn't live with Jesus. But the eyewitnesses, they did. Or someone like Luke went and interviewed the eyewitnesses and all the Gospels. The four of them were written within a period of time where the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and appearances were witnessed by those people. They had not passed So they could confront it. But what we don't do is we don't say, well, this guy had an angel appear to him in the forest, and there's a new revelation about Jesus that doesn't match the apostolic version. We don't go for that. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. We look forward to the resurrection from the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. That's orthodox Christianity. And belief about who? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, three in one. That's orthodox belief. And so that's who needs to be at the center of our worship. If you replace Jesus with a Jesus of your imagination or of some new revelation that doesn't match apostolic or biblical viewpoints, it's a wrong version. Now, if we were to talk more about this mortality or blood or life, I have several statements here. The first one is that biblical Christians understand that blood is the means of remission of sin and do not take blood lightly. Life is in the blood and it is by the blood of Jesus that we are saved. Now, this sounds like one of those lines where you're like, I don't play with blood um, and I don't worship with blood. But to the people of Paul's time, they did okay and so one of the things that they dealt with was you'd go down to the temple in Corinth they'd sacrifice a bull they'd collect the bull's blood you'd eat the bull and then you'd also pour out the blood at the altar of a false god and so you were giving the lifeblood of an animal to this false god you were sacrificing life to an idol and that's where this becomes real to us do we sacrifice life to an idol do you take something other than the God of the Bible and sacrifice things near and dear and that have life? Do you give them to that idol? So you, you, you believe, you believe that, uh, that pleasure is the highest form of humanity. And so you sacrifice uh, what you have and the life of your marriage and the life of your children so that you can experience more pleasure at the cost of, of them. Or maybe you believe that money is the most important thing. And so you hoard and collect money at the cost of sharing it and stewarding it well to bless others. And so you you sacrifice life to that idol. Biblical Christians believe that all life, especially human life, in every form, at every stage, matters. This is a big one in our society right now. We believe that all life, especially human life, in every form, at every stage, matters. Does the life of a fetus matter? Does the life of someone at the end of their years who is dealing with dementia and has lost the ability to think well or remember things, does their life matter? Yeah. Does the life of someone who has different political beliefs than me matter? Does the life of someone with a different nationality matter? You go through it over and over and over again. Does life matter? And the answer for the believer is yes. Life at every stage, especially human life, and in every form, it matters. The other thing biblical Christians do is they believe that valuing life and it means making decisions that demonstrate that they will consider the life of others more important than their own. I am willing to value your life over my own. The God of the universe was willing to lay down the life of his son so that I could be saved. I am willing to lay down my preferences, my life for you. I am willing to take things like uh, Romans 14 moments, which are matters of conscience. And I'm willing to take my matters of conscience and then say your approach to this is actually more important than mine. This is where masks come in, right? You walk into a business, they have a sign on the door, and they say, we want you to wear a mask. You walk in and they say, hey, please wear your mask. You go, hey, it's your business. It's a matter of conscience. I'll put it on. They don't care? Do your thing. I've had people say that they're, they're uncomfortable coming to church right now because not everyone wears a mask. And they want to wear a mask. But if they wear a mask into church, they feel judged by others for wearing it. Well, first of all, who cares? Who cares? Um, and I know that's me, some people do care. But like whether or not you like my conscience on wearing masks is not important to me. Uh, I'm gonna live by my conscience. I stand before God and I do what I do in good conscience and if you don't like it, that I don't know. The other part of it is if you're judging people for wearing a mask, it might be time to grow up. Like let them make their choices. For whatever reason, their health, their decision, with their body, that's what they've chosen to do. Why would you judge such a thing? And so these are where matters of conscience come in and we say, I believe that valuing life means making demonstrations that I consider you as more important than me. Biblical Christians believe in standing up for the rights and freedoms of others, especially those of their children. Uh, we stand up for the rights and freedoms of others, especially those of our children. If you were to look at, say, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it walks through uh, how we're supposed to pass the, the faith of the, of, of the God of the Bible into our children. And the government steps in and says, well, we were thinking about doing this thing. And you go, well, that's, that's in direct opposition to what would pass the faith of the Bible onto my children. You say, No. I won't do that. You can go do that, and somebody else can do that with their kids, but I'm not doing that because I'm standing up for the rights and freedoms of my children. And the most important one is that they understand who the God of the Bible is. And so I won't, I won't back down on that one. So there are places where we give in based upon conscience, and there are places where we say no based upon biblical truth. Biblical Christians believe that the right of the individual to act according to their free choice, you have the right, I have the right to act according to my free choice until that free choice harms the life, liberty, or property of another. So I believe that you could do pretty much whatever you want uh, so far as your life is concerned until your choice harms my life, my liberty, or my property. And this was very clear within the Old Testament law that was given to the Jews, right? The places where the law said punish that person was when somebody made a choice that took the life of someone else, took the liberty of someone else, or harmed the property of someone else. Those were the places where the law was very clear. You can't do that. Okay? And so I believe that you can make what choices you want to make with your free choice until your choice harms my life, my liberty, or my property. I can do as I see fit until... I harm your life, your liberty, or your property, and this was this was the law of the Old Testament. And then, what happened in English common laws? They understood the Bible, and they took that and they instilled it in English common law. And then, our Constitution and our uh, Declaration and all the things that we have in our laws were based upon both the Old Testament law and English common law. And so, when you hear the founders say something like, "You can do, you know, pursue life, liberty, and happiness," that's that's your move. Until you take someone else's life, liberty, or happiness. And so we believe that you have the right to do what you want to do with your free choice until you harm the life, liberty, or property of another. And that's where government should be. Uh, Biblical Christians know that this life is only a shadow or vapor compared to eternity, and with that in mind, we live this life for an eternal reward. Yes, this life is awesome. We're going to get 80... 90 something years maybe if we're lucky Um, and we love being here Uh, there there are very few people that say I can't wait to die Um, we love being here because God has made this place fantastic Um, Are there situations and times where depression might get the better of someone and they say something different than that? Yeah. But God has made this life fantastic. The human relationships that we have, the world that he's created, uh, the, the time that we have to spend with each other and bless each other. We all want to be here, but we understand that it is just a shadow or a vapor compared to the eternity that awaits us. And so we live with eternity in mind. So those are some of the ways that Christians value life. You could add to that list certainly. When we talk about sexual morality and sexual ethics, biblical Christians live a spirit-filled life, filled life, granting them power over their fleshly urges and thereby maintain a biblical sexual ethic in their life. I live by the power of the Spirit. He guides me, he overcomes my fleshly urges, and I can then maintain a biblical sexual ethic in my life. Again, that sexual ethic is one man, one woman inside the confines of covenant marriage until death do them part. Furthermore, biblical Christians train their children and fellow Christians to do the same. However, we do not expect the unregenerate to live a chaste lifestyle until they have believed in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Placing a biblical sexual ethic on people who do not have Jesus at the center of their worship is absolute. It won't happen you will be as frustrated as you could possibly be. In fact, if you put a biblical sexual ethic on yourself and are not trusting Jesus, you will be as frustrated as can be because you won't experience victory until the spirit of God is guiding your decision-making and overcoming the urges of your flesh so that you can live that ethic. We understand that the issue that humanity faces is not getting our ethics in order. It's getting our God in order. And once we have our God in order, our ethics follow. We value life and we live according to his plans. The other thing that biblical Christians do is they do not expect godless lawmakers to institute biblical ethics in their lawmaking. Nor do they believe that the right set of laws will produce human flourishing. Only those in relationship with God through Jesus Christ will experience true human flourishing. And so as our government gets further and further away from what it was founded on and the beliefs that were there, and the people that are in leadership, they don't acknowledge the God of the Bible. They may say they do, but then you look at the fruit and you go, that is not how people worship Jesus. And as, as, as our government gets further and further from that, I have no expectation for the people in power to say, you know what's important? Biblical sexual ethics. They won't do it. They won't do it. And so, what they, again, what they have is a God issue, not an ethics issue. The other thing that biblical Christians do is they expect to be mocked, maligned, and potentially persecuted for believing in and maintaining biblical sexual ethics. And so, what biblical sexual ethics, they, they have been and will continue to be an affront to the idol worship of the masses. Again, I told you at the beginning of this, there was something for everyone to feel uncomfortable with. But the masses have always worshipped something other than God. And as the masses have worshipped something other than the biblical God, they're willing to harm other people and live out of line with God's definition of sexuality. And so when you stand up and you say, well, you know, I keep a biblical sexual ethic. I, I, don't, I don't believe in practicing sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman until death do them part." What you can expect is you can expect to be mocked, maligned, and potentially persecuted for it. And the reason why is because you're not just saying to that individual that their morals are wrong. You're telling them that their God is wrong. They may not be able to identify that. You may not be able to identify that. But when you say, I value the life of everyone regardless, including, it doesn't matter. I value all life, and I practice a biblical sexual ethic. They may not be able to identify it. But what they heard was, I have a fundamental problem with God, and I don't want to deal with it, so get out of my life. And so that's what's going on. And the other thing you have to realize is that if you're raising your children to believe this and you send them into school and they go to university and and they say, "I, I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe that all life matters. I believe in a biblical sexual ethic. They're going to be mocked, maligned, and potentially persecuted. They're going to be drug along and say, hey, you know what? It's okay. Come on. You can do this. Everybody else is doing it. Well, of course everybody else is doing it. Jesus isn't the center of their worship. But Jesus is the center of my worship, so I'm not playing along. And that's what we have to raise. We have to raise convicted, grown-up adults that leave the house ready to say no to society and yes to Jesus. Amen. Right. And that's who you have to be as an individual. You have to walk into your workplace ready to say no to society and yes to Jesus. And that is, the, that is the, that's what's been going on for 2,000 years. It's It will, will continue until Jesus returns. You have to be willing to say, I love you. But I will not condone your sin, your false God, and tell you that everything's all right when it's not. I'm not gonna to pretend to love you by leaving you in a place where you're in harm's way. And that's what we're told to do. Just be quiet about it, Let it leave everyone in harm's way. Okay, that's the loving thing to do. Would you yank somebody out of traffic? Cars get ready to hit them, you'd yank them out of traffic. Something much worse is coming down the pipe. And so are you willing to say, I care about you enough to have this difficult conversation? And so those three things are three things that biblical Christians, and I say biblical Christians as if there were any other kind, must be resolute about. And so if you're a New Year's resolution person, I, I, I'm typically not, but if you're a New, York, or a New Year's resolution person, then make a stance to be resolute about worshiping the God of the Bible, valuing life, and maintaining a biblical sexual ethic. And if, in the spirit strength, you, you do those three things, I believe that the rest of your life will fall into place. I didn't say get easier, but it will fall into place. If you'll say, Jesus is the center of my worship, life matters and I'm maintaining a biblical sexual ethic, I believe that the rest of your life will take on meaning, and that meaning will be that you will become a greater part, as your life gains greater cohesiveness, you'll become a greater part of God's redemptive plan for the earth. And that's what should be exciting to us. Um, There are a lot of things to be distracted by, but what should be exciting to us is that my life is in line with God's redemptive plan for the earth. My, my, my eternity is fixed and I live my life now in line with what that eternity will be. Mm-hmm. I experience human flourishing in my own life and in the life of my family and in the life of my friends because I'm following Jesus here and now. And so I just told everyone that uh, go ahead and head on out of here and live in direct opposition to your culture. Um, I want you to leave and I want you to live in direct opposition to your culture. I want you to live in direct opposition to the urges of your flesh. Um, And uh, have a nice time. (laughs) So this morning when I got up, right, it's like 10 degrees outside. And uh, I don't know why I didn't get in the truck, but I I leaned in the truck and I turned the key. And it goes, it made a whining noise and the engine turned over like twice and then it just stopped. It was like, not doing this. And many of you, are going to do that. You're going to turn the key, you're going to hear a whining noise, and you're just going to let the engine turn off. What I had to do, is I had to turn that key and I had to put my hand on the gas pedal and then the engine would go. And what I want you to understand as a follower of Jesus is God has put a very powerful engine inside of you. He has put his own strength, his own spirit, his own self in you. And what you cannot do is let the coldness of the world turn off that engine. And so this is where our will is involved. And we say, I will. Like Paul dedicated himself with the Nazarite vow. I will dedicate myself to God and I will love him first. And as I love him first, he's going to cause me to value the life of others. Live in an ethical way. Not just with my sexuality, but almost everything. Everything. He's going to do it with everything. Little by little, bit by bit. And so that's why we live as Christians to be those people. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you uh, this morning that we have the opportunity to come together and worship you. Uh, we thank you that the style of worship is not that important, just that you're the center of it, that your son Jesus, who you sent uh, to be among us and to die for the remission of our sins, um, he is the center of our worship, the resurrected from the dead, the one who defeated sin and death. Your son Jesus is the center of our worship, and we thank you that you've given him to us. Uh, we thank you that you went a step further and you you, you had eyewitnesses write down the account of what your son did And then uh, you share this this mission, this co-mission, that we would be lived, living, that we would be filled and living by the power of the Spirit to bless others as we worship and glorify you. Give us the courage, the strength, the resolute mindset to live with you at the center of our lives valuing the life of others, and caring about our sexual ethic, passing it on to the next generation, not allowing superficial things to get in the way of biblical truth, moving to the next generation or the next culture, but that we would guard what matters. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope this message encouraged you to continue seeking God and knowing His peace. If you would like prayer support, you can text us or call us at 775-984-8787. Next week, we're going to continue in Acts chapter 21, where we will be discussing God's hatred for sin and undying love for you and I. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.